Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming back. And um, just wanted to highlight a couple um, key moments from the last presentation that that we did. Um, so Father Stephen Shire was the first testimony. And um, 12 years as a priest and um, had a fatal car accident and kind of had this mystical moment when he got better uh, at mass. And then he was um, kind of put into this illumination of conscience experience. And um, Mother Mary actually is the one who pleads with Jesus for his sake and, and brings him back. <clears throat> um, so that he can minister to other people. And so that was a really beautiful moment. Um, and then the second testimony was uh, Sister Nicolina Kohler, who um, was a nun for quite a long time. She's of German heritage and the post-World War II younger generation. So she had a really adversity to, like she just did not, care to think much about suffering and she really avoided the lord's passion for that reason but she ends up in the holy land for a sabbatical and a protestant friend of hers who has a serious devotion to our lord's passion leads her um up the via dolorosa all the way to the foot of the cross where she has a mystical illumination of conscience experience and it's just beautiful some of the things that they say in these testimonies um, because they are religious vocational people it's um, presented to us in such a different light and it helps us to remember that all of us are going to experience this uh, some of us already have like you know what's compiled in this book here but for the most part um, we are awaiting this and we can kind of get caught up in downplaying certain sins that we have or certain habits that we have. And uh, we live in an age right now where truth is kind of this subjective experience rather than a solid, concrete, factual resource. And we cannot get caught up in things like that. We're going to cover two testimonies tonight that are different than last week's, but still very edifying, and they speak on a whole different level. Um, our first testimony we're going to cover is uh, Father Rick Wendell, and he became a priest later in life after he'd done quite a few things and um, was kind of successful. Um, and then the uh, second testimony that we're going to cover is Carter Smith, and he's just very unique. Everything about his testimony is completely unique to the other experiences, and it speaks a lot to the um, confusion that we're seeing out there today with um, gender fluidity, homosexual lifestyles, um, but he also, I, I consider him a religious vocational person as well. All right. So Father Rick Wendell, um, I'm just going to call him Rick in the beginning because he's not a father yet. Um, as a kid, he was very smart um, and a thrill seeker. He was in and out of the hospital 
I don't know how many times, like how many injuries he listed, but there were several, and I'm sure there were many more, much to his mother's uh, chagrin, I'm sure. But he sort of describes himself as this Renaissance man, and he just kind of was talented at anything he would try his hand at, and it made him very likable, very popular. Um, It made life easy for him in a way. And so he never really had to think much about church or God or the existence of something else because he kind of just flew through life. Um, He does talk about how uh, his mother was religious um, and a Catholic, but his father was really not in the picture. Um, So he's got this kind of classic tale of he doesn't understand God or God's love because he didn't understand that from his father on earth and that's something i think a lot of us can sometimes um attribute to you know we get confusions about heavenly aspects of love because we don't understand them here in our familial life um but he had pretty flighty morals he was very sexually promiscuous had several relationships um and Ironically enough, he had a Catholic school education, but he just found it riddled with platitudes, very empty and not satisfactory to him. But again, he he kind of skated through life, so it wasn't something that was truly um, a search for him. And when he grew up and went to college, he he went to a Catholic university, he said in the book, that he didn't particularly witness any sort of faith amongst the monks that he's that he was around at his college either. And so again, that must have made him feel like this really wasn't religion is an experience, I guess, for other people, but not for me. So there's nobody really inspiring him. He had your typical drug, sex, alcohol life, um, living for thrill and for pleasure. And he kind of hops around and does different things, um, but then he finally settles into a construction job where he becomes the head contractor of his own company. He's very, he's quickly becoming very wealthy, building golf homes for people um, down in, I think it's Florida. And um, he's got, (laughs) he's talking about all these possessions that he had and this trophy fiance that he had and And he's very successful in that scope of life. But uh, after all of these crazy accidents that he's had and he's been protected from his whole life, he actually goes into the hospital because there's some sort of accident on the job site where a nail pierces his face. And they have to surgically go in and try to remove this. And he actually dies because of an adverse reaction to the anesthesia. So for two and a half hours, he's on the operating table, or he's he's basically dead. And um, he talks about how he's got a very rare blood type, which just happens to be the same that is on the Shroud of Turin and other Eucharistic miracles. It's AB positive. Very rare. So he talks about how they already were ready to ship him off for organ donation while he is in the presence of Jesus. And he's... Um, basically shown an internal review of his life. He doesn't immediately remember. He wakes up, he jolts up, he grabs his fiance and his mom and scares the heck out of them. 
And then um, he actually goes on with his life for a little while, but he's starting to ask questions. He actually reads a book about Medjugorje, and then he and his mom make a plan to go on a trip. So they're there in Medjugorje, and he's got this doubting Thomas attitude. He really is skeptical of everything. He has a lot of questions, but he's a positive person, so he's willing to give it this chance. And so all of a sudden, he hears the church bells in Medjugorje. It's a beautiful, sunny day. And when the church bells ring, it means that there's an apparition happening with one of the uh, visionaries. And so Mary is literally visiting, and he he starts to see the sun do a dance in the sky and change all these colors. He says he was standing by a woman, and he learned very quickly that women and men see things so differently. He's going, huh, it looks kind of purplish. And she goes, no, it's lilac, and oh, it's magenta. Wow, chartreuse. <laughs> She's just going off on the color wheel, and he suddenly thinks, oh, where's my mom? So he goes and he tries to find his mom and he crosses in front of the tabernacle of the outdoor church space when all of a sudden he's just taken out of his body into this mystical experience. He's standing before Jesus and Jesus is showing him in just the flash of a second his whole life, all the sins he's ever committed, starting from when he was a very small boy. He steals this little um i don't know what you call it it's just a little wooden car i think and he just did it for no reason you know his mom would have bought it for him but he just had the impulse to do it so he did it and from there on out jesus shows him that every sin from that moment on he just wasn't the same unique innocent individual that god made him to be the, the individual that's actually made in the image of God sort of starts to not disappear, but he can see spots on him. It's almost like if you were looking in a mirror and you see your reflection, and then all of a sudden the water spots are kind of getting in your view. So it's sort of that kind of a reflection in Jesus's eyes as well. And so he's seeing that everything that he started to do started to get worse and worse. And the worse that his sins got, the more justification he could provide and fill in the blanks for why he would do that, or it really wasn't that bad. And by the time Jesus is getting to his early adulthood and his teenage years, he's showing him many times where he was with a woman. He was, you know, partially responsible for her mistake in it and fully responsible for his. And one thing that he says that really strikes me is the question of virginity, taking virginity from someone. He said it was almost worse in Jesus' eyes than if I had beat her. And I just thought, whoa, that's intense. Um, so that's a very serious offense in the eyes of Jesus. And we just don't even tend to think about it anymore, which is kind of the sad um, fog of reality that we live in. So very illuminating on many different issues that we're, we're dealing with. Um, he talks about also how Jesus explains that 
all of his sins, even the smallest of sins, uh, you know, like like him stealing this little matchbox car, it does have a ripple effect. And he's actually seen that ripple effect, how just stealing a little matchbox car causes the store owners to lose trust in people and have to file insurance claims. And then everybody from there on down is just getting grumpy and agitated with each other because it's this whole process. So it's it's really interesting to see this as well. Um, so on page 127 is where he says, as my sins grew worse, my conscience somehow became more muted. And so you're, yeah, I think we've all experienced this where we're actually numb to our own, the severity of our own sins. <clears throat> And that's a really dangerous spot to be in, as he he explains to us. Um, he says that uh, finally he did come back to his own body, and he's just shaking, and he's in tears. Miracle of the sun is still happening in the sky, which means Mary is still present. And um, he finally thinks back to, oh yeah, I needed to find my mom. And one of the most beautiful things that he talks about in his um, review in front of Jesus is that Jesus just looks at him with this intense love. And he actually sees, too, the love of his mother in his eyes. And he talks about how there were so many times where his mother tried to encourage him not to treat women that way or to come back to church or not to put such um, stock in material goods and things, but to invest in his faith life and his soul. And he just didn't really listen to her. He, he blows her off and it hurts her. There are several times too where he physically made it difficult for her to be part of his life. And he would put stipulations on their relationship saying, if you're going to judge me that way, then we're not going to have a relationship and you're not going to see your future grandkids and things like this. And so it sort of forced her into coercion with his sinful nature and how painful that was, not just for his mother's heart, but for Jesus's heart as well. Um, so he goes and he, he's remembering that and he finds his mom and I'm like crying <laughs> reading this because he talks about how he just puts his arms around his mother, trying to heal those wounds of hers, but knowing he can't, you know, and, um, they're looking up at this miracle of the sun together, just time stops and they're just enjoying this beautiful gift that that our lady is giving at this moment and so it's really beautiful so he said he ends it with uh, he well he ends this part of it with well that was my first day in Medjugorje <laughs> and so you're thinking oh my gosh what happens next and so the next day he wakes up and he feels this intense need to go to confession. And I've heard about this from a lot of testimonies from Medjugorje about Mary just giving people these little gifts, I guess you could say. And so it's rainy. He's got his raincoat on. There's not really a whole lot of people outside. 
And certainly nobody just kind of sitting there in front of the tabernacle, but that's where he was. He was sitting there kind of contemplating what had happened to him the previous day. And then he remembered this Irish priest from the, the day prior. And he thought, I just had a really good connection with him. I wish I could find him. I'd really love to do a confession with Father Mike is his name. And he's this Irish priest. And um, all of a sudden, maybe two minutes later, he's looking behind him and there goes Father Mike. <laughs> and he flags him down. And um, they experience a three-hour conversation slash confession where uh, Father Mike is actually much like Padre Pio in that he can read a soul. So this is obviously a, a compiled confession of Rick's whole life. And as he's forgetting things or as he's losing track, Father Mike is guiding him saying, well, you did this and you were doing it because of that. And he said just to have somebody that mystically connected to his soul that he really didn't know. And for them to just appear out of nowhere, you know, right as he was thinking about that person, he said it only could have been Mary, you know. And so the reason why he wanted this priest to do this confession with him is because he says... I know that he wouldn't let me off the hook with just five Hail Marys. I've done some things and I need serious penance. So after the confession is over, um, Father Mike looks at him and he's, and I'd like to just go ahead and read the absolution that, that Father Mike gives him real quick because it's just too beautiful to summarize. Page 130, if you'd like to follow along in the physical book. I didn't think of my ponderings as prayer, but no more had I finished my thought than Father Mike walked into my peripheral vision. For the next three hours, we sat together on that bench, huddled underneath his umbrella while I told him my sins. Like St. Padre Pio, he could read into my soul. He knew the details of my sins before I said them. When I had trouble voicing my most shameful and embarrassing moments, he would help me by reminding me of particulars. When I finally finished, he gave me my penance. You go to the mountain, the mountain of the cross. You take your shoes off, not as a penance, but as an equalizer for all the infirm and the elderly, for the sick and less able who come here. You are young and strong, and as you climb that mountain in your bare feet and you pray for every person you ever hurt, you will absolve your sins. And so he says, then he laid his hands on my head for absolution, and heat came out of them and into me, and I didn't know what that was. I just knew that it was. As I climbed the mountain, I could remember the name of every person I hurt. I could remember the lies, seductions, cheating, thefts, and I sobbed. I sobbed all the way to the top. And since I left my shoes at the bottom, I sobbed even more all the way down. At the base of the mountain where a crucifix stood, I prostrated myself and I begged Jesus for my life. I knew that I could continue to walk this life perfectly from that moment on, and I would never be able to make up for the harm I had done. So. Right there, you can just see how merciful God is. <clears throat> this absolution that this priest gives him is really more about him 
taking a journey and just filtering everything out and praying for those people. And not that he's really reversing anything, but it's just this beautiful cleansing process and uh, such a beautiful picture that he paints, you know, because he's <laughs> sobbing up the mountain and then sobbing back down because his feet probably hurt. And so it's just a really beautiful testimony. Um, he talks about the next day he actually encounters Father Mike when he comes back down the mountain and Father Mike says, come with me. He didn't know where he was going, but all of a sudden, Father Mike puts his purple stole on and and um, he ushers him into a healing service that he's performing. And um, let's see where it starts here. It starts, when I finally stood back up, I felt truly forgiven. I had never felt that way before in my life. I put my tennis shoes on and I thanked God for his extravagant mercy. Then I walked back to the church where I ran into Father Mike again. I followed him into a room with lots of folding chairs where people were singing hymns. He put on his purple stole and placed it around his neck and he walked to the front of the room. People stood up one at a time and walked over to him. When it came my turn, I was standing about three feet in front of Father Mike, and my mouth opened involuntarily, and I heard my voice say, I have many scars on my heart, and what I want is the Holy Spirit. Putting my hand over my mouth, I thought, okay, that was weird. I wasn't going to say anything. Father Mike didn't utter a word. He picked up a small vial of holy oil. He made the sign of the cross on my forehead and put his right hand on my head, then my heart. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit descended with great force, and I was afraid, not from fear, but awe. The Spirit stopped right above my heart. The experience wasn't merely psychological, but physical, spiritual, and emotional. It dwarfed any human drug or sexual sensation. What I underwent was the most explosively powerful event of my life. For those who know the original Star Trek series, I liken it to putting one's head in the antimatter. Let there be no more doubt, let there be no more fear, Father Mike said, and in that moment my spirit expanded as though taking in the biggest breath of air possible. The more I opened myself, the more he filled me, until there was no distinction between God and me. When I finally came back to consciousness of my surroundings, I found myself lying on the floor. Father Mike has his, had his hand on my heart, and he and another man, Bill Curry, who had been also converted here at Medjugorje, were praying for me. Obviously, go to Medjugorje with Father Rick. <laughs> You're bound to see some pretty cool things. But it's amazing to me how he has this profound experience after really having no spirituality his whole life. He experiences um, this immense love from God. And he talks earlier in the testimony about how his father, maybe his biological earthly father, maybe hugged him one time when he was drunk at Christmas and told him that he was, you know, that he loved him and that he was proud of him. And that's it. 
the rest of his life, he does literally anything and everything to try and get his father's attention. Uh, from, you know, jumping off of mountains and dirt bikes and all kinds of things to being extremely successful and promiscuous with women. It was all about trying to show his dad something, that he was worthy of some kind of love. But here he comes to Medjugorje and he literally had to do nothing. And God just, boom, explodes in the spirit into this man and creates a whole new person. So um, it was ironically to the Feast of Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, uh, when he was there at this time. He talks about how the next day he wakes up and um, he actually has another mystical experience where Jesus literally calls him to the priesthood. And I'll just go ahead and read that part too. Um, he's lying in bed and he is transported to this place with beautiful, just light and sunshine. And he can see grass and they're all lit up like little silver, uh, tinsels. And, and then he sees, um, I don't know how to say this woman's name, but, um, she's a famous young artist. He says that the closest that he can come to actually seeing Jesus's face is a Cayenne Kamarik, a girl who could miraculously paint like a master, even as a child without any training whatsoever. And she was allegedly transported to heaven and recorded on canvas what she was witnessed. The face she painted was the exact face that I saw. He appeared wearing a soft cream colored garment flecked with brown and with strands of four or five threads woven in, in a checkered pattern. I could clearly make out that his bearded face and intense eyes were inviting but drawing me in. Then without speaking, Jesus communicated to me, I want you to be a priest. I was completely taken aback. You've got to be kidding me. I am the worst sitter ever. I We've just been through this. And all Jesus says is yes. But I'm engaged to be married. I love my fiance. I've named my kids. The dress is bought. Country club is rented. Critical mass has been achieved. And sorry to say it, but I've been treating her like my wife already. I had never, ever, ever thought of being a priest. Not one moment. Not uh, not even an ounce of altar boy fervor, no inclination, nothing, not once. And all Jesus says is, yes. <laughs> he says, come on, this isn't for guys like me. That's for someone else. You create those guys. You know, from beyond time, they're going to be priests. You put them into a wonderful family. They come out of the altar boy shoot and boom, they're priests. And all Jesus says, calmly looking at rick i know what i'm doing he said and then he turns and walks away and then just to end uh father rick's testimony i'll go ahead and read um, from diary of saint maria faustina that the author gives us it's number 1541 jesus speaks write this for the benefit of distressed souls when a soul sees and realizes the gravity of its sins, 
When the whole abyss of the misery into which it immersed itself is displayed before its eyes, let it not despair. But with trust, let it throw itself into the arms of my mercy, as a child into the arms of its beloved mother. These souls have a right, a priority to my compassionate heart. They have first access to my mercy. Tell them that no soul has been called upon. My mercy has been disappointed. Uh, tell them that no soul that has been called upon. My mercy has been disappointed or brought to shame. I delight particularly in a soul which has placed my uh, trust in my goodness. Beautiful, beautiful testimonies in this book. I, I could read them. Well, I have. I've read them over and over again, and I just get something more each time that I read them. So, yeah, if you want to go ahead and read the group discussion for Rick Wendell, sure. go ahead, Ryan. Sure. Can you hear me clearly? I can hear you well. Okay. Um, when Rick crosses in front of the Holy Tabernacle, he is taken from his physical being and reminded of his experience at the judgment seat of God. Why do you believe the author mentions the tabernacle? How is this significant? How does Father Rick's conversion at Medjugorje of all places speak to you about the graces Our Lady wishes to grant us to defeat Satan and fulfill the triumph of her Immaculate Heart? All right. I think Erica raised her hand. Hi there, can you hear me? We can hear you. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for sharing that story. And for, I just want to say thank you so much. It gives me a lot of encouragement. Um, when I think of individuals I know uh, who have, have had very little uh, experience of spirituality or faith in their life, um, it really encourages me uh, to hope and to um, continue to pray for people um, that I know. And uh, I, I'm astounded by that story, quite frankly. <laughs> Which one is that again in the book? Yes, so this one is Father Rick Wendell, and it starts on page 122 if you have the actual physical book. Yes, I do. I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but yes, I can go to it, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's he, a great story. Yeah. Such a, such and a he's, great story. Um, it is, and it's actually not as detailed in this book, I guess, as it is in a different book that she writes where she compiles six different men and their battles. Um, I think it's called Of Men and Mary. Yeah, there it is. Okay, it's called Of Men oh. and Mary, How, How Six yeah. Men Won the Greatest Battle of Their Lives. And I've heard amazing things. Um, you can actually watch Father Rick give his full testimony on Queen of Peace Media on YouTube as well. And she right, gives so you that, the... Okay, yeah. yes, I recall. Is that one by Christine Watkins, too? It is. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've heard of it, but I, I haven't read the personal testimonies, the actual book of that one, but I, I have heard of the publication. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking you. forward to reading the more detailed one, too. It's... It's just beautiful. I absolutely love these stories that she has compiled. <laughs> they are gems. Yeah. And, and yeah, just 
I, I don't know. I'm going to be marveling on that for this evening. Um, and, and I think even go and reread it, you know, because it, it's just, just so beautiful, just so wonderful how, how that, mm -hmm. that man came to um, understand where he was, but, but then how he received Christ or, or you know, the revelation and, and meeting that father, Mike, did you say father Mike? Uh, yes, Father Mike was the one there in uh, Medjugorje. Right, right, and and just how that all came about, it's um, it's it's wonderful, isn't it? Because I think sometimes we think, oh, um, how how is this person going to know about God or God's intervention in their life if they haven't had a prior experience? You know what I mean? Right, like if you have no concept really of what a fatherly love looks like or you know clearly he had a re a good relationship with his mom but he even puts his arm out to her because that's what he's experienced you know he's told her that they're not going to have a relationship if she can't just accept everything he wants to do and be and that's just the way it is and i think we see that a lot in our culture nowadays um People tend oh, to say, yeah. I'm not going to write my religious relatives out of my life because I don't know how to deal with that. And if you're going to judge me, then I can't, I can't judge myself. So <laughs> it's either yeah. eradicate this relationship or, you yeah. know, so absolutely. I, I think ultimately it, it, it just really goes to show you that, you know, God, God can break through into any individual's life on the planet it doesn't matter who they are or what yeah. kind of background or where they're and from you're so right and this testimony shows the power that we have in the catholic church or, or i guess the power that manifests through what we have yes. in the catholic church is how i guess i would phrase it because the holy tabernacle he just crosses in front of it and jesus is obviously is there yeah and boom <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, um, you know, obviously this is happening while Mary is appearing to an, a visionary. Mm -hmm. He doesn't mention which one, but just her presence there is such a gift for everybody in ways yeah. that you can't even imagine. You could be standing next to somebody and they're having a complete breakthrough moment, you know? That's so, right. That's right. I just... And I want to go there. Our intellectual, <laughs> intellectual faculties are do not can't in any way uh, meet meet the understanding of these things. <laughs> do you know what I mean? No, I do because unless yeah. you read something like this, you just don't. I guess you just don't know what's possible until you're that's told it. what's possible. <laughs> that's it. That's it. So thank you very much. I, I'm very uh, very appreciate this this. Um, workshop seminar or whatever you want to call it session so thank you very much <laughs> it is kind of a whatever you want to call it <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure what else to call it okay thank you yeah thank you eric i think we had a question from victoria i think the thing that i liked was the fact that um when he walked past the tabernacle and how many times have we walked past the tabernacle and we don't even realize that Jesus is really present there. Even though he's mm -hmm. hidden, we don't, we just kind of like take it for granted. 
And I think that's what kind of like really, really taught me was the fact that because mm-hmm. um, when I go to church, I'll sit there and, and I'll just like stare at the tabernacle and just just feel his presence. But how many times do we not really realize? Because I, I know that there's a lot of people that really don't truly believe that Jesus is, is truly present, that he is body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. How many times yeah. we walk past that and um and and just casually, just even casually walk past, just think that, oh, that's just, you know, something. It's not really, you know, um, that's where he's, that's where he's at. Like, that's where he, he truly is at. Even though we can't see him, we know he's there. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. Thank you. Absolutely. I mean, until you said that, I just didn't even really think of that. But it's so true. We are in front of it. I mean you can kind of be in front of it whenever you want to be right but we don't see it as this mystical experience most of us and so we just you know i think it's kind of hard for our brains to wrap around it that it is truly what it is we i think at least for me i really try hard to make sure at least once or twice when I'm in front of the Blessed Sacrament or or um, the Tabernacle that I'm thinking about a Eucharistic miracle or um, something like this because it helps me to remind myself that I'm not sitting in front of a piece of bread. That when I forget to genuflect, I'm not doing that to an inanimate object. I'm doing that to the Lord. You know, so it does put this frame of reference, uh, reverence on it that is so unique. And I appreciate you bringing that up. Thank you. That just, it just truly it amazes me. I think, uh, I think I saw, what was it? Somebody posted something about um, there was a dog. Did you, did you all see that? That German yes. shepherd? Okay. I think Ron posted that. I'm so it's cool. Not the first time I've seen that. It's not the first time I've seen that. But it's where this dog actually knew that there was a living, breathing presence in the tabernacle. How cool is that? Yeah. How awesome <laughs> is that? How awesome is that? That a creature, dog, a dog, which, by the way, is God backwards. How awesome is that? <laughs> it is so cool. And you know, I mean, really, just, how, how yeah. awesome is that? Preachers, so. uh, just in their existence, right? Praise him. And it's yeah. just so true. That's just beautiful. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. It really puts it into perspective. We t- We pass by it all the time. We need to understand the power of it, the just the sheer uh, grace that it is for us to be there in in its presence. I mean, when you think of it's a tabernacle, right? And when you think of the Old Testament, 
uh, there were only certain people who were allowed to be within so many feet even of the tabernacle, which was just a tent at the time, you know, and then to actually go into the Holy of Holies. It was one person one time a year. But Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's there in every church. And we're able to just approach it. I mean, reverently and not obviously don't open up or anything. Don't feel like you can do that. But but just to be there and stare at it, like you said, and, and just be in Jesus's presence is incredible. That is. Thank you very much, Sensibi. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. I think we should go ahead and move on. We'll do um, Carter Smith. And this is a completely different testimony than the ones we've heard yet. Um, it's pretty intense, um, to say the least. Carter Smith, as a young boy, and I think he grew up probably in the 50s, 60s. Um, but it just touches my heart how he starts his testimony off. He's saying that as a young boy, he his favorite thing to do was to go outside in his little sandbox, grab a few twigs, and play the passion of the Christ. He would build a mountain like it was Gol uh, Golgotha, and then he would build a pathway up to it. He would build some gates and and he would enact the passion out in, in his yard, in his, uh, his, his little sandbox. And for me to think about that, having a young son and just the things that he's interested in versus the things that this boy is interested in, it's just really uniquely special. It's so beautiful. What a devotion he truly has to the passion of our Lord. Um, but he grows up to have a real problem with social anxiety and it kind of plagues everything. It's just this underlying theme that really leads him into a lot of bad things. Um, uh, his family kind of stops going to church, I think, uh, once he gets into teen years. I mean, they're just not they don't really talk about religion a lot. Uh, they used to go to church, but they stop. Um, and then he starts to get into high school and he's starting to have these confusing feelings of attraction to the same sex. And by high school, he's already experimenting with that. And his parents really don't know what's going on. Um, he starts to get into drugs a lot because it's kind of the hippie movement that he's exposed to and he's got some anxiety problems he's got some serious things that he's uh dealing with as far as social anxiety you know his self-confidence completely plummeted and then he also has this problem with trying to figure out why he's attracted to the same sex as well and and come to terms with that go into college it's more of what his parents want they kind of want him to stay away from his hippie friends and and go to college but he just doesn't have any motivation he doesn't have any interest in that he's already pretty addicted to drugs um and he's living in a commune for quite a while uh when he finally goes broke and then he moves back home 
And as he moves back home, he completely drops out of school. And there's this strange event that happens one night in his family where his parents find out that he drops out of school and his mom chases him around the house with a knife and lunges at him. And so it causes him to run away and he like spends the night in a park all by himself in the cold. And you can just kind of imagine what he's feeling. He doesn't have spirituality. He doesn't have, you know, it's just something like school. What if he told his mom about his real feelings <laughs> for other men, you know? So I'm sure that scared the heck out of him, that something like that could send her off the deep end. And so he comes back home a couple days later, and they're just relieved that he's okay. Just, he just kind of decides that he's going to take spirituality into his own hands. So he mm -hmm. decides to go back to church. Um, that quells his parents' um, anger with him for a while. and. He starts talking on a regular basis with this priest. It's kind of like a spiritual director for him who starts talking to him about um, vocational life. And so he eventually joins a Trappist monastery. Now, while he's at this Trappist monastery, he has a mystical experience. And this is really where his faith blooms again. And he starts to come back to, he, as he puts it, he starts to kind of come back to his interior life that was so beautiful and strong as a little kid, but was never really nurtured. And then when the real world kind of got a hold of him, it was kind of like that part of him just died. So this is the mystical experience. I'm just going to read it out of the book. It's um, page 177 if you want to follow along. My third week living with the Trappists on the Feast of the Sacred Heart, I felt a desire to walk out in the fields after a compline of prayers. At twilight, I covered most a mi almost a mile. The colors of the landscape, paintbrushed by God with the fading light of the sun, looked stunningly beautiful. And as I turned to walk back, the next thing I knew, our Lord was on my right side. I saw him as the crucified Jesus, wearing the crown of thorns and a loincloth, walking slightly in front and to the right of me. It wasn't as I imagined, nor was it an apparition. It was an intellectual vision, as described by St. Teresa of Avila. In the same time, I saw the twelve apostles and the Blessed Mother walking before us, about twenty feet ahead, leading the way toward the monastery. This gave me a comforting feeling of my family all just walking home together. I find that to be just so beautiful. I mean, can you imagine um, just witnessing all of that? How beautiful. He goes on to say, my first thought was, Jesus is closer to me than I am to myself. In the moment he appeared, I sensed a pure divine warmth, an all-consuming love rush over me. The feeling was intoxicating. His love was beyond expression. When I turned my head toward him, I could see in tragic detail every wound on his body. I gasped, my gosh, did I cause all these wounds on you? Awestruck, I thought, what am I going to say to him? He's right here. 
The Lord's head bowed slightly. As he gazed forward, I saw everything. His eyes, his broken body, his blood dripping down his light brown skin. His wounds from the crown, the scourging, and the nails, they looked so fresh. It seemed as though he had just come down from the cross to walk with me. I turned toward Jesus and I began to sob, pouring out to him my heart's innermost desires. Jesus, I cried, I want to be a great saint. I want to reach the spiritual heights like your great followers have. But I don't want any of the ecstasies or the visions or the extraordinary experiences. Humbled by his presence, I felt unworthy to even ask to reach so high. And so I added, let me go through the dark night, the dark trials, and carry heavy crosses. That is the way I want to attain the heights. I want to soar like an eagle in the heavens, to be a saint in your eyes only, and to be small and unknown in the world. After I spoke, truly meaning all that I said, Jesus responded to me, not with words, but through an imprint on my soul. He turned his head toward me and looked into my eyes and said, yes. I gasped, my gosh, you're going to actually grant this? Then I saw a lance of his fiery love plunge into my heart and I fell into a swoon, an ecstasy of love that filled my whole being and took my breath away. Then he wasn't there anymore. I was left by myself trying to regain my balance, yet a fierce love for him remained burning in the center of my chest. Within a short time, it turned into an actual physical pain, which lasted for two or three weeks and brought me great joy. What we see here is he's just, he's got this unique experience and it just completely sets the tone for the rest of his life. Um, and the way that he asks for God to put him through trials such as the dark night of the soul, which basically means that you go through a period where you don't get consolation from the Holy Spirit. You don't get those moments where you can see God and feel him. It sort of feels like you're Job almost. You're just alone and you can't understand. You know, it's something that you have to really uh, purify yourself through and what it is is it's a purification that God puts a soul through to teach that soul that you have to rely on God both in times of desolation and consolation so even though you might not be getting that Holy Spirit feedback or those little glimpses that God's paying attention he's still there and so this is just a really timid beautiful soul who he says put me through that Jesus uh, make me little and unknown and put me through the dark night of the soul so that I can attain saintly heights and suffer with you in that way and this is so far beyond my understanding because I am a person of comfort <laughs> reading this really taught me that and it helps us to understand different ways that we can relate to Jesus. Um, you know, I think that it's very hard for us to understand how to put suffering into uh, an act of love for Jesus. And 
he explains it and puts it so well. So if anything comes out of his testimony for for me, it's that. After this experience, um, he's actually encouraged by this monastery to leave and go experience the world. So he was only there for a trial uh, run. And then I just think this is part of that dark night of the soul that Jesus is granting. He just can't seem to make to, to make it anywhere in a um, vocational setting. And it's very, very painful. It's a lot of purification for him. Um, so this monastery, they tell him to go and uh, possibly join the armed forces and see the world and experience things and then see if um, he wants to when he's done with that. He joins the Navy and this leads him really back into this life of sin. You know, it, it's very hard unless you're a chaplain <laughs> to be a spiritual person in that environment. He talks about that. And um, this led him to return home after an honorable discharge and the Trappist Monastery was disbanded by that point. He comes home and he tells his parents about his sexual persuasion towards the same sex and they don't react at all. And he's very surprised by that, especially by, you know, after the way that his mom reacted to him telling him that he, you know, telling her that he wasn't going to go to school anymore. He kind of feels almost like a silent blessing from them to live that lifestyle. You know, he goes through a period of maybe 10 to 20 years of actually living the gay lifestyle. I think he moves to San Francisco and he has quite a few partnerships with four or five different men and they're longer partnerships, but they don't last. Uh, he talks about how painful that was for him, but he also is really wrestling with the back and forth his whole life. And he's talking about how He's trying to listen to the world and embrace this lifestyle, but then he feels the conflicted nature within him telling him that this isn't right. And so eventually he just stops going to mass because he feels like he can't keep both lifestyles. He's hypocritical is how he's feeling. And so he drops mass yet again in his life. He starts to... Um, really experienced some painful things. Um, and then he decides that he's going to get a spiritual director. This is probably years later. He's talking with his spiritual director and um, that man leads him to another monastery um, in the Eastern Rite. And this was the first person, his spiritual director, the first person to actually be truthful with him and say, you know, after he's confessed things so many times, finally say, if you keep going on this road, you're not going to end up where you want to end up. You're not living the lifestyle that that mystical experience that that Jesus was, you know, you promised Jesus that you wanted to live as a saint for him. And you're you've steered away from that. And the only end to this road is hell that was the first person to finally be truthful with him and just completely honest and so 
he finally joins this Eastern Rite. One thing that is really highlighted in his testimony is his struggle with not just the gay uh, lifestyle, but habitual sin. Um, his lifelong struggle with masturbation particularly uh, opens him up to this really difficult struggle of constantly falling back into sin, constantly falling back into relationships to give him comfort that somebody loves him. And he is never edified from any of that because it doesn't come from where true love comes from. So he finally is living in the monastic lifestyle. And um, unfortunately, that monastery disbands as well. And he finally realizes that it's never going to be easy for him. I think it finally clicks in his mind that he's not going to uh, find an easy path because Jesus is allowing sort of a Job-like experience for him because of what he granted that day at the Trappist Monastery. Um, so everything that he tries to do to get closer to Jesus and live for Jesus is failing. And it's, it's, um, I actually just listened to the book of Job um, or started to with Father Mike Schmidt, I think his name, the Bible in a year. And so we're going through the book of Job right now and I'm listening to it thinking, my gosh, this sounds like Carter's testimony because it is, it really is like a modern day uh, Job story. Everything he tries to do it's just kind of um fails and he has to learn to love the lord and seek him no matter what and so um his testimony ends basically with him experiencing all these failures but finally realizing that habitual sin is killing his interior life and so he's giving it up and um, he uh, he lives a monastic lifestyle, but in the private sector. So, so um, <clears throat> he actually lives in a retirement community now, but he lives his life as if he were a monk. He um, goes to mass every day, confession at least once a week, and um, and he spends his life hidden and quiet and in prayer and solitude and um, mostly in poverty. He started living this gift that Jesus gave him. And it's such a unique testimony. I've re never really heard something like this before, because I think we tend to shy away from um, really honest testimonies like this. There's not a lot of people out there willing to give them. Um, so this is a blessing that he is willing to share this. But there's also just a lot of people who maybe they can relate to it too much or um, they kind of want that happy ending type story. And this isn't that for someone who doesn't have a spiritually mature eye. If you don't understand what you're looking at, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't seem like Jesus is giving this guy much of a break. But really, he's just allowing exactly what he asked for in the beginning of the testimony so it's such a beautiful 
really just a literary experience to to read this. I'm going to go ahead and read a couple Bible verses that uh, the author includes here. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The other one that she gives us uh, is St. Paul, who accepted his unrelieved suffering, spoke of this reality. I want to show Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Philippians 3.10. And he also adds, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church. Colossians 1.24. And then he also gives um, his favorite excerpts from the diary of St. Faustina that kind of help him get through this uh this special mission that he has accepted from Jesus. And uh, they're also highlighting um, redemptive suffering. Jesus says to St. Faustina, there is but one price at which souls are bought, and that is suffering united to my suffering on the cross. Pure love understands these words. Carnal love will never understand them. Every conversion of a sinful soul demands sacrifice. I have need of your sufferings to rescue souls. Suffering is a grace through uh, suffering is a grace. Through suffering, the soul becomes like the Savior. In suffering, love becomes crystallized. The greater the suffering, the purer the love. So with that, let's go ahead and uh, read the questions. So Carter mystically experiences the crucified Jesus in this testimony due to his reverence for the suffering Lord Jesus on the cross. What particular mystery or event have you held a particular devotion to in the church and why? And the second question is, what are ways we can pray for our deepest heart, from our deepest heart, for all those suffering the schism of human morality in this day and age. What does it mean to love a person who lives a lifestyle outside of church teaching? Thank you, Ron. Um, I particularly chose to write this second question because I really feel like a lot of us are dealing with this right now. I think it's really the minority of people who are still trying to live life according to tradition and scripture and magisterium and um there's so many influences out there telling you that that's wrong <clears throat> and that it's not loving when really it truthfully is i just imagine that we all kind of know somebody who's going through struggles like what Car carter goes through and um we can think of that person in our head right now um, so different ways that <clears throat> I've thought to pray for people like this is, I guess, in daily um, sacrifices, just small things that uh, you can do through the divine will of God, meaning that 
you kind of take a chore that you're doing um, or an errand you're running or, or whatever it might be, let's just say washing the dishes. And instead of it being you washing the dishes, you say, Jesus, let yourself wash these dishes through me. And in so doing that, remove scales from their eyes. Help them to see the dirt all over them and wash it away. You know, so things like that, I think, are what we tend to not really understand as sacrifice, but that's really how we're supposed to understand sacrifice. And of course, there's pain that you can go through, offer a headache to the Lord, of course, or, or something like that. But he says right in here um, to St. Faustina that every conversion of a sinful soul demands sacrifice. Even just giving up time for a rosary, giving up a favorite TV show, um, particularly one that might have, um, I think most shows nowadays have some kind of celebration of homosexuality and that lifestyle, but particularly abstaining from things like that and then offering that up as your sacrifice. Hey, Martha, I'll go ahead and unmute you. Um, I'm so no happy problem. to meet you, Courtney. <laughs> Hello, Ron and everybody here. Um, I wanted to share just something really quick. Um, hey, Hi, Ron. <laughs> um, with this journey that God has put me on in regards to really appreciating, accepting, learning more about the ultimate gift of being able to live in the divine will there is so much to gather from this beautiful gift and i call it a gift because it's not like it's not another devotion of the church it is the ultimate gift given to these for all of god's children in these end times it was reserved for these end times and something that has been revealed to luisa picareta who is the little daughter of this beautiful gift and the one entrusted to share with the world. It talks about, she talks about the rounds, what God revealed to her about making the rounds. And I just wanna say something quick and short about it. It's, it you can get quite lengthy in understanding this. Um, I'm still very much learning a lot about this particular part of this gift, but it basically says, acts and rounds are the activity of someone living in the divine will. Praying in God's will is what is known as the rounds. God loves us. We love God. The rounds are simply an exchange of love between us and God, a circle of love. So then it says here, it goes into, we know that Adam sinned. We know that him and Eve broke the graces. Um, really, what we could have had was taken away. All of creation was put into chaos because sin was allowed to enter. And of course, we see, you know, the earth itself is roaring because the earth is contaminated by sin. And volcanoes are erupting, hurricanes are stronger. The earth entirely is being purified because it has to be purified. Animals kill each other without thinking. They're promiscuous with each other without thinking because 
that was never the intention of God. Everything was supposed to be in harmony. But Adam and Eve, with their disobedience, broke all of that. However, God is giving that back to us. So God, it says here, God is returning to us the original grace he gave to Adam, the gift to operate with God's very own will within us. This was made possible only by Jesus redeeming us from sin and reuniting us to the relationship with God. God still yearns for this exchange of love with each soul. In the rounds, people living with the gift of the divine will have the ability, this is exciting everyone, have the ability to go back in the past, the present, and go into the future to gather up and take hold of all the acts of the human generations. They can cover everything with love, thanksgiving, praise, glory, and honor, and give it back to God on behalf of everyone. In effect, they are able to make up for everybody, giving God what he deserves and yearns for. How incredible is that? To be I mean... able to have this gift. <laughs> To be able to travel, who's here seen the, the, the time machine? To be able to travel through time and space, because we know God is outside of human time and space, and be able to join ourselves with his will and repair generation upon generation of so many acts of profanation against him. It's just, it's, it's mind-blowing. It makes Marvel superheroes seem superfluous. It's awesome. Thank Just you so them. much. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, it's unbelievable how much um, power God wants to give us in order to do these things and to make reparations and to share that love with not just present day people, but generationally is what you're talking about, too. And it's just incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're very welcome, Courtney. And I absolutely appreciate what you're doing. Ron, thank you for inviting me. I have to get ready for a podcast now. So I will leave you. <laughs> but God well, bless you, you all. <laughs> thank you for dropping by. That really just puts a such a different spin on what we have been talking about in this book. So um, it does it helps us to kind of realize that these testimonies and, and this door of mercy that's open for us at this time, that's what we're reading about in this book, um, is God's door of mercy open before his door of justice. And for mm -hmm. us to step through that door, you know, and, and take hold of that gift and uh, he's got amazing things planned for us. <laughs> It's exactly. And it's us relying like he revealed to St. Faustina, Jesus, I trust in you. This is where our faith needs to hit. As we say, the rubber hits the road. This is where we ought to be the church militant and not lose faith because we belong to him. And Absolutely. he's going to purify every inch of this earth, including us, because what's coming is going to be grand. And magnificent and i i pray i'm chosen to live in such an era <laughs> me too now i'm ready to run a marathon <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
given me the spirit. <laughs> All right. Good night, Courtney. Good night, Ron. And good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you again, Martha. Thanks, God, God bless. <laughs> God bless. All right. Well, there you go, everybody. Um, I'm going to use that phrase that I used last week, rock my socks off. That's what that just did. Um, it's it is so exciting that we're living in a time where we're seeing conversions like this happen on just a i mean i'm seeing it on a magnificent scale at this time right now where just people you never thought could come back and love the lord you just i, I think honestly i give up hope sometimes you know praying for somebody for so long but then you see that spark hit them and they become these fervent lovers of Christ. And that's what it's all about. That's why we read these testimonies and we persevere because we have so many souls that just need other people to have hope for them and prayers for them. And here's a Bible verse, Matthew 12, 36. It says, it is still hard though. Concupiscence is deeply ingrained, I tell you. On the day of judgment, people will render an account for every careless word they speak. So this is from an article where the priest is saying that him reading that basically proved to him that there will be a great illumination of conscience moment. Just one line, one line in the Bible. That's how profound I think that this whole journey, this whole story, um, this whole plan of divine mercy is. And hopefully, like Mark, Martha said, we are privileged and called to live, experience it, and watch what happens afterwards. So let me go ahead and close out the night with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in us the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and we shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Holy Spirit, fulfill in us the work begun by Jesus. Let our prayer on behalf of the whole world be fruitful and unwavering. Hasten the time when each of us will attain a genuine spiritual life. Enliven our work that it might reach all human beings, all who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and all his inheritance. Take away our natural presumption and uplift us with a holy humility, with reverence for God and selfish courage. Let no vain attachment impede the work of our state in life, nor personal interests divert us from the demands of justice. May no scheming on our part reduce love to our own petty dimensions. May all be noble in us, the quest and the respect for truth all the willingness to sacrifice even to the cross and death, and may all be accomplished in accord with the final prayer of the Son to his heavenly Father, and in accord with the grace of the Father and Son to give through you the spirit of love to the church and her institutions, to every soul and to all peoples. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thanks a lot, Courtney. That was a, an amazing seminar, and I really appreciate you um, devoting your time to to share with us these amazing testimonies. So 
Thank you very much. Very happy to do it. Thank you, Ron. All right, everybody. I think then we'll go ahead and sign off. And I pray that all of you have a beautiful week and join us next week. We're going to dive into a whole new theme and um, we'll have two more testimonies for you to listen to and enjoy. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.